Hello, and welcome to this special conversation as part of the Writing Life podcast. I'm Peggy Hughes. At the start of 2021, I invited three writers to write a piece on the theme Weather With You. I offered them a very broad brief, inspired by an article last February by Jenny Ofo for the National Centre for Writing, in which she explored the circumstances around writing her brilliant novel, Weather. What atmospheric pressures go into the work? What impact does a year like the one we've just had have on what and how one is able to write? The three invited writers are Kerni Dokhti, Abir Mukherjee and Derek Awusu and they've delivered three terrific and very different responses on their weather and the views from where they are writing from. Nonetheless, as Heather Parry writes in her introduction to the series, taken together, they remind us that, as with other forces of nature, there is no destination for creative work. The role of the artist and the process of writing, of being a writer, is, like the weather, ever-changing, ever-shifting, ever-renewing, and always, of course, a surprise. These pieces are part of our Arts Council England Ambition for Excellence funded programme, Open Doors, and we're very grateful for their support in making this possible. In this episode, Abir Mukherjee discusses his piece, A Change in the Weather, with writer Aisha Malik. Abir is the best-selling author of the award-winning Wyndham and Banerjee series of crime novels set in Raj-era India. He's a two-time winner of the CWA Historical Dagger and has won the Wilbur Smith Award for Adventure Writing. His books have also been shortlisted for the CWA Gold Dagger and the HWA Gold Crown. His next book, The Shadows of Men, comes out in November 2021. Abir grew up in Scotland and now lives in Surrey with his wife and two sons. Aisha Malik is from South London, a former publicist at Penguin Random House turned managing editor at Cornerstone's literary consultancy, now full-time writer of contemporary fiction. Her debut novel, Sophia Khan is Not Obliged, and its sequel, The Other Half of Happiness, were dubbed The Muslim Bridget Jones. This Green and Pleasant Land is her latest novel. Aisha has also contributed to several anthologies and is known for ghostwriting Great British Bake Off winner Nadia Hussein's Books for Adults. So you titled your piece, Weather With You, A Change in the Air, which speaks to the nature of an individual's feelings, but also alludes to a grander narrative, how one's personal development is affected by their geographical climate and setting. I want to know, as a writer, you understand the interplay of these two facets. Can you talk a bit about belonging and displacement in a cold climate? I'm pretty sure, Aisha, coming from a a similar background to mine, being the the child of immigrants from South Asia, you you probably have a similar experience. I I liken it to a a form of almost cultural schizophrenia. You grow up in a place which has a culture very different from that of your parents. So you have one experience outside of the home and one within the home, and and they are quite different. And, and, you know, the, the settings of those are very different, and the narratives that go on are very different, and what is taken for granted as fact is often very different. And so you find yourself grappling with these things although we both grew up in these different climates you and I and I grew up in Scotland you grew up in London there's also a slight difference there because I grew up in a place which was you know 99% homogeneous it was 99% white Scottish and I think you grew up in an area which was a bit more multicultural I'm interested to know what that was like. You know, I think even though mine was very much a homogeneous culture that I grew up in, and you could say it was a colder climate, in certain respects, it's also quite a warm climate because I was a minority within a population that was itself 
a minority in the UK. So in certain ways, you know, I wonder if growing up as I did in, in Scotland, the reception that we got, the welcome or the understanding, I wonder whether that is also coloured by the fact that Scotland or the Scots are a minority within a larger British culture. I've often heard you talk about class as an issue as well and how that feeds into the way your ethnicity plays out in terms of differences. And because I, I come from a quite a working class background, and as I understand it, I think you, you came from a more middle class background. And I wonder how that also affected perceptions and the kind of warmth with which you were invited into certain social spheres. I think that's a really good question. And it is, you're right, it's one that has fascinated me. You know, the immigrant experience of my parents is different from the narrative that we hear most of the time about, you know, ethnic minority communities coming to the UK. You know, my, my parents came as middle class immigrants. They didn't come with money, um, they came with qualifications. And that afforded them a level of social capital, which I think a lot of other communities don't have or don't start with in the UK. But what it meant was that opened a lot of doors. And where I grew up, the west of Scotland, is a very... It's a very working class part of Britain. It is a part of Britain that has a rich industrial and working class legacy that was decimated in the 70s and 80s. And so it's a part of the country with extreme social problems, some of which predate that, but others of which date from that time when I was growing up. But a lot of them are related to class, whether it's issues around healthcare, education, diet, all of these things are linked to issues of class. And what fascinated me was being able to see that difference and the opportunities that were afforded to me, you know, as the son of brown immigrants coming to the UK, the opportunities that I had, the life opportunities that I had from schooling through to university, through to career choice, um, were some of the things that People who lived five miles down the road from me, you know, white working class Scottish boys and girls who grew up at the same time as me, the the opportunities I had were ones that they couldn't aspire to simply because of the class that they were born into. When we look at things, we we often look through things through the prism of race and we see, you know, what holds us back. I think a lot of the time we should also focus on the issues of class. And of course, race exacerbates everything. So if you're working class and you're from an ethnic minority, obviously your chances are diminished even further. But I think growing up as middle class, even as an ethnic minority, is a very interesting place to be in the UK. And I think it's also coloured my outlook in terms of this country and what it means to be British. Yeah, no, that makes, I completely agree with you on the class thing. And I I don't think we really talk about it enough, to be honest. And um, it's interesting because when I was growing up, my, even though I came from a very working class family, I feel like my father had very middle class sensibilities. And so what that did was it opened avenues for me personally, because he was very pro integration, very pro, you know, assimilation, whatever, you know, I use air quotes when I say that term, because it's, it's a bit loaded, isn't it? Often working class communities that came to London, they could be quite insular. And so what that did, it it narrowed opportunities for people. I wonder whether they were insular or they were forced by their circumstances to be insular. I agree with that because it wasn't exactly a welcoming environment, was it? And so you tended to stick to what you knew, what was familiar and what was comfortable. And that's a very human experience. 
So the the next question I had, actually, this really resonated with me, what you say in your piece. You say, I grew up with my mother's warning ringing in my ears that we were here only at the forbearance of the majority and that one day, despite whatever our British passports might say, we could be ordered to up and leave. Now, funnily enough, my mum still says the same thing to me, which I find quite ridiculous. And yet we've seen in the media how you can be stripped of your nationality, even though I'm suspecting neither of us are primed for radicalisation. So I guess my question to you is, how are we meant to negotiate this improbable yet potential threat with the idea of also constantly being told to fully embrace being British? Do you know what? I, I, I am glad that your mother says the same thing. And I hope you chuckled when you read that. I did, I did, absolutely. It made me laugh. I think it's a common refrain that, you know, many of our parents or people of our parents' generation told us because they remembered or they lived through things like the expulsion from Uganda by Idi Amin. They lived through the Rivers of Blood speech. They lived through the National Front of the 70s. And they were they were immigrants. You know, they didn't have roots here. And they made lives here, but they, the, the roots were shallow. But of course, people like you and me, we, we grew up with a confidence that we were British. And so it's really upsetting to find, you know, 40 years later that my mum was right and your mum was right. And it's, it's not just this issue of, you know, Shamima Begum and radicalised kids who are losing their nationality. Let's take the, the, the case of the Windrush fiasco, where, where so many people who'd given their lives, who were invited to this country to help rebuild after the Second World War. These people were robbed of their citizenship because we don't honour our history, because we don't talk about our history, we don't talk about the contribution made by people who are not white. Um, even at the weekend there, we saw that after a hundred years, people are finally facing up to the fact that we haven't honoured ethnic minority war dead from the First World War. You know, these people were just pushed into mass graves. Their names weren't taken, whereas we went to great pains to record as many names as we could of white people that were killed. But ethnic minorities, you know, who fought and died for this country weren't in the same way. And it's taken a hundred years for that to be recognised. That to me is is something fundamentally shocking. It's shocking at the same time it's not shocking because we grew up in a country which is never, well, it's almost like a country within a country, a country that ignores what we represent a lot of the time. Um, to, to answer your question, how's one meant to negotiate this idea that we, you know, we may be kicked out or we may, we're not British enough on some levels and at the same time as we are told to fully embrace Britishness? Well, I would turn the question around. I would say that we are as fully British as anybody else. And, and that's why I love the term British, because British is often hyphenated. You can be British English, you can be British Scottish, you can be British Irish or Northern Irish or Welsh. Why can't you be British Asian or British African or British West Indian? You can. All of these things in my book carry exactly the same legitimacy. So my version of Britishness might be different to, you know, somebody from Surrey, some you know person whose family came over in 1066. But my version of Britishness is just as authentic, just as acceptable, should be just as real as their Britishness. So I would turn it around. I would say, what are people who might think of themselves as British, what would they do to fully embrace us or our version of Britishness as as authentic as their own version of Britishness? Because let's not forget it. It is. We were born here. We were raised here. Our view of 
is different from yours, but so is a guy sitting up in the Hebrides. His idea of Britain is different from yours as well. Absolutely. I mean, we could talk a lot about the idea of authenticity, couldn't we? What is authentic British and how this feeds into the concept of representation in writing? And I think we will touch upon that a bit later. I want your view on that. I mean, what, what do you do you feel yourself as fully British? Um, I think it took, I don't know about your parents, but um, my parents would often say, once we have this much money, we're going to go back home. So up until probably like when I was 11 or 12, I heard this refrain quite um, consistently. And so I think that, and at the same time, you know, my dad was really into being British, you know, he had lots of, I know this sounds an odd thing to say, but he had lots of white friends. Um, He was very much into, you know, making sure that we take part in all school activities and going abroad and all, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, somewhere at the back of my mind, it didn't feel like we were fully British. And I think that's come about slowly and surely as I've got older and more connected to the country in which I live but I can't say even growing up we were we never spoke English in the house we had to speak Urdu because my dad said when you get to nursery you will or school you'll learn to speak English but I want my kids to know how to speak Urdu which you know at the time was pretty crap because you can imagine what I sounded like when I first went to school but I think that came about over time especially when you go to the country from which your parents came and you realize actually I certainly don't belong here. So it's belonging is constantly evolving, isn't it? Geographically and emotionally. I almost think that you teach yourself how to belong and you you decide also where you want to belong and then you make that place your home. So in many ways that privilege isn't given to you, you you stake your claim on it. I think you're right. We never have that certainty that I think, not just in this country, but 99% of people around the world have. They, they know where they're born. They know where they're from. They know where they belong. And that's certainty that you know people like you and I have never been able to take for granted. It's very interesting what you said about you know speaking Urdu in the house. You know, I, I grew up in two different, uh, let's call it Hindu Bengali communities, one in London for the first four years of my life, and then the second one up in Glasgow. And the attitudes were quite different. So in, in London, the view was you don't teach your kids Bengali. You get them speaking English. You become English, you essentially. And, and again, both communities were very middle class. The Hindu Bengali community in London and the one in Glasgow are ostensibly doctors, lawyers, engineers, these are the people that came over. But the attitude in London was one of, you learn English, you learn Bengali if you want, but really you're communicating in English, even in the house. Whereas when we moved to Scotland, it was very different. It was maybe because it was a smaller community, but and maybe it was a community that felt less required to fit in because it was already amongst a minority community. There, it was much more about keeping the culture alive so everybody would speak Bengali in the house or in the community. I found it was quite different from, from the community in London at that time. That's interesting, actually. Yeah, we weren't, we weren't allowed to speak English in the household. I wouldn't get my chocolate treats if I spoke English. I'd like to move on to, you say something both intensely comic and tragic. You write, I remember a childhood friend offering me an eraser in the playground so that I could rub out the brown and become white. I mean, you could truly put that um, scene if you wrote it in a novel. I, but what I want to ask you, I don't want to go into um, childhood trauma here, but I do want to ask you about how these experiences can become a vehicle for creativity. 
writing and reading for many when growing up was a means to understand the self and you know if you weren't too narcissistic then others too but do you think that had you not had these feelings and experiences of displacement and or otherness that you would be a writer or what you did write about would be different if you hadn't had these experiences? Do you know that's a good question um I think I write what I write because I sit between these two different worlds. Just just to go back to the, to what we read when we were growing up, I didn't see myself in literature when I was growing up. And, you know, I'd, I'd not thought of it in depth until you sort of asked the question, you know, reading as a, as a means to understand the self. And I, I look back to my formative years, let's say from about the age of about 14 to about 18, when I, when I really got into reading for more than just entertainment. I wonder how much I actually learned about myself from books. I learned about the world. I learned about people. I, I never saw myself in literature. And I, I, maybe it's a function of what I was reading, but I think it was also a function of what was published. You know, when we were growing up, when we were younger, what do you start with? You start off with like Enid Blyton and the Famous Five or whatever. You know, it's lashings of ginger beer and, and scones and stuff. And that wasn't my experience growing up in the West of Scotland. It was more sort of chip butties. So, I, And obviously, you know, add to that the dimension of race and ethnicity. You know, I never saw myself. But then again, I didn't see West of Scotland people either in literature. I didn't see the community around me. And I mean, that's changing now. I think that's changed in the last 20, 30 years, where voices that aren't from the accepted South of England, middle class background, I think those voices are being heard now and we're seeing them more in print. But I never saw myself growing up. You know, even if we're talking about the classics, I, I, I always looked at these as stories of somebody else. And so, yeah, I, I, I would question whether I saw myself in the writing. What I would say is if it wasn't for my upbringing, if it wasn't for where I grew up and how I grew up, I wouldn't write about what I write about. And I, I wouldn't write about it in the style that I write about it. So, you know, my, my books are set in India in the 20s, uh, but really we're looking at the dynamics between British people and Indian people. And this conflict, well, sometimes it's a conflict, but sometimes there's a harmony between these races. And really that's what I try and look at in the books. And I look at that because I would imagine it's probably similar for you, that that battle, that conflict, that times that conflict, but at other times that harmony between the two different sides of your life, the two different sides of your personality, the the one that hails from your parents' culture and the other that hails from your environment. You know, that that to me is is a daily battle. Well not a battle, it's a daily question. So that's what I write about. Yeah. If I didn't have that background I certainly wouldn't be writing what I'm writing. And when it comes to style, you know, my, my main character is an Englishman, but really he's not. He's actually a West of Scotland. He's a Glaswegian at heart. Um, he has this acerbic Glaswegian gallows humour, which I think comes from a life of hardship, you know, and, and that's the sort of humour that you have in Glasgow because it was, and it still is, a very working class, hard place. And the way you make sense of the trials of life, the way you deal with the trials of such a hard life is through dark humour. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I love Sam Wyndham and the acerbic humour. Um, I just wanted to say something about the not seeing yourself in books. It's funny because when I read as a young person or a teenager, it never, I mean, it never really bothered me until I suppose um, I, I was forced to interrogate why there weren't people like me in books. Fran Leibowitz says um, something really wonderful, how books should be 
a door, not a mirror. And I really love that idea because I think that when you read, part of what connects the reader to the character is because, you know, we have these universal feelings, these universal emotions. We are all, at the end of the day, human beings, right? And it's through that universality that we are able to understand one another. But I also um, I also think, yes, it's important to understand the world we live in via that specific lens, whether that's from, an, you know, someone from the LGBTQI community or ethnic minority or an ethnic community. I think that the fundamental of storytelling, though, even if you don't see yourself in books, the thread that binds us together is universal. I think you're quite right. And yeah, I mean, for me, reading was about a window into other worlds until, I mean, the first book that really spoke to me was The Namesake by Jhumpa Lahiri. And I must have been, what, I was in my late 20s um, when I read that. It's an awakening, isn't it? It's suddenly, you read something like that and you're like, oh, hang on, why is this experience that seems so familiar to me now? Why is it taking me so long to come across it? There's, there's very few times in my life when I felt like that. Um, that was one of them. And the other, I think, was, do you remember Goodness Gracious Me, the, the British Asian sketch show? That was another of these sort of moments when, when a light bulb goes on and you, you when you see people who look like you and who not, not just look like you, who think like you and whose parents or relatives or friends act like people you know, and you suddenly realise, I'm not the only one. Yeah, and that does get, that brings about that sense of belonging, doesn't it? I wonder if um, you know people who feel comfortable in their background. Let's say you know the the majority population. You know, you and I will never know whether or not they feel comfortable all the time because they they'll have they ever experienced that light bulb moment after twenty years of life or whatever. Suddenly, for the first time, seeing their issues, their identities reflected on screen or in a book I, I can't answer that maybe maybe it's a universal thing maybe we're all struggling to find that one story or that one tv program that reflects our lives in a way that no other have but I think it was it's fundamental for us because there were very few people who looked like us in literature published in in English or on screen and so you know, when I read The Namesake, which is the story of you know Bengali immigrants to America, you know, I saw so much of my own family in that, down to the mannerisms of the, the father, which were, you know, in certain respects, the same as my own father's. Things that I thought were peculiar to my family, it turns out, are peculiar to my community. And that, suddenly, it's that I'm not alone moment, when you realise that there are people out there who think like you, who understand that. And it took too long, in my opinion. Mm. And this segues nicely into my next question, actually. So the examples you give from TV and literature in your piece um, about the rescuing of the, and I quote, little brown slave children from cruel and debauched Maharaja under the spell of a bloodthirsty goddess, unquote, from Indiana Jones will strike a chord with many who grew up loving the films and who have rewatched it years later in horror. But your statement, most importantly, I learned that what we are taught or led to believe is not always the truth. And this has further reaching implications. As writers, we are fulfilling multiple tasks. We're portraying authentic characters, we're trying to entertain the reader, we're trying to tell a great story, keep up the pace, that kind of thing. But also, on some level, we're trying to tackle the truth, right? 
we're trying to get to the nitty gritty of what it means to be human and what it means to live. So you're trying to relate all these big themes to the reader via the specifics of a character and experience. Um, going back to what you were saying earlier about people who maybe don't have to live with um, our dual identity, truth is also about perspective. And so how do we as writers address the perspectives that don't sit well with us or are so at odds with our own beliefs? How do you put that across in your writing without judging something which you on a day-to-day basis as a human being would judge, but as a writer, you're not really allowed to judge? You know, that's a really good question. Um, The short answer is it's extremely difficult, but I suppose a more more useful answer is it's the things that are we are at odds with. It's the that motivate us, or, or certainly animates me to write. It's things that I see as wrong or injustices. Things that I perceive are against my beliefs or my truths that animate me to write. If I'm not bugged by a subject, if something's not bothering me, I won't write about it. And I think you're the same. It's, you know, all writers write for different reasons. Some of us are are motivated by this desire to shout out about something that we feel is unfairly portrayed or not portrayed properly in our opinions. And you're right in that it's our truth. It's our view of something. But too often our view is one that is missed because our view is not the commonly held narrative. The reason we have our view, I should point out, is because we sit between two stools. We, we sit between a British identity and a South Asian identity. We don't fully accept either as gospel. We don't accept a British, an established British narrative as gospel any more than we would do an established South Asian narrative, because we have perspectives on both. We, we see things in stereo, whereas I would imagine, you know, I, I would describe most people as seeing things, you know, basically through one eye, because they've only got one position to look at it to look at an issue. Whereas because we come from such fluid backgrounds, our views on things can change in a much quicker way. Or we, our, our, let's say our vista is wider. We, we can see a wider dimension to things simply because we've been given those tools at a very early age. Wouldn't it be easy, though, to, because we, we live in a very polarizing time, right, where you have to have the, the same opinion as me or your I don't know, a fascist or a racist. Um, and it's a really, it's really easy to label people as such um, nowadays. And I'm just more, I'm quite interested in the way um, you bring nuance into the writing, where you get to, where you say what you have to say, where you bring certain truth to light, but where you also stay away from demonising people you allow characters to be three-dimensional and as well they should be and I'm just interested in you doing that because I think like you say it's really easy to be shouty and performative when it comes to these things it's a lot harder to um, take on perspective with which you don't agree and yet try to channel the character via that perspective in order to bring about a wider understanding I don't know whether that's just a function of age. I'm a lot less angry than I was 20 years ago. Um, maybe, maybe age just calms you down and makes you see things differently. But also I think it's because I have never thought of myself as having exclusive access to the truth. Um, I'm one of these people that 
you know, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with people who are unsure of themselves and people who believe that they know everything or know the truth or the right way of things. And again, that comes from this background of sitting between often diametrically opposed views. You know, you learn something at school, you come home and you learn there's a completely different side to that from your parents. And so I've never felt I have been in command of the truth. I've always thought that the truth lurks in the shadows, in the greys. It's never black or white. And that's easier for me to do because, and I think it's it's easier for you to do as well, because we've never had that certainty. We've never been able to say, yes, this is the truth, because we've always been open to these different views. Everything in our life tends to have two opposing viewpoints, or we can at least see two opposing viewpoints. So I've never felt the need to judge anyone because I don't feel I'm, I'm able to. I'm constantly groping for for something that makes sense. Yeah, but how can I judge? I mean, it's not my position to judge. It's not my position to tell you what is right. My job is simply to open your eyes, I would hope, to a different narrative and just show you that it's there. And it's not an Indian narrative. It's not a white British narrative. It's merely my narrative, the narrative that I've picked up from multiple sources, you know, whether that's my parents, my trips to that part of the world, my understanding of history and my understanding of human nature. And and none of these things are are particularly deep, but they they come together and they, they form my views. And I think why people like you and I are published now, whereas maybe 10 years ago we wouldn't have been published, is because there is a growing understanding in this country that there may be viewpoints that aren't put to them and have traditionally not been put to them. Um, And I think we're seeing it reflected in the Black Lives Matter. We're seeing it in the toppling of statues. We're seeing it in, as I say, you know, this acceptance or this this acceptance that, you know, we we haven't honoured ethnic minority war dead. We're seeing it in the links to slavery that are now coming out. You know, this history that we burnish in this country hides so many uh, things in the shadows. And I think it's time that we took a more nuanced approach to our own history. And this, I think, is what's happening. You know, one of the things my father said to me before he passed away, he knew the first book was coming. He never lived to see it come out. But he did say to me, you know, do you think British people are ready to read this? And I didn't know the answer to that. Turns Looking out. Back, yeah, turns well, out they are. Turns out, turns out people are, are willing to, to listen and to read and, and to see a different perspective. So from that point of view, I'm you know, really, really chuffed by it. But there's a lot to do. And but I, I you know, I don't have all the answers. I'm just I'm just giving you a perspective, as you say. And if it wasn't for the counter perspective, if it wasn't for the counter narrative, I wouldn't write my truth. So, the book, you know, my, my next book really deals with communalism in India, so Hindu-Muslim violence. And, and what's really sparked my interest in that, or what's made me write this book, is what's happening with, you know, the Hindu nationalist government in India, which, um, you know, f- as far as I can tell, is moving away from everything that goes to the core of Indian democracy. And that's something I've got to write about. I may be wrong about what I state, but there's still, it's my views. I wouldn't be writing about it if I wasn't at odds with what, with what was happening on the ground. Mm. So going back to your student days, 
Shall we talk about that C you got in your English essay? Can you please um, tell our listeners a bit about um, what your essay was about? And um... yeah, I should, yeah, I should, and I should say that you know, for a, for a British Asian boy, you know, you know, we're not particularly good at sports as Bengalis, you know, so we, we we tended to sort of make up for it academically, and to get a C in this essay it was it was quite it was quite traumatic. Um, but really, I've te- and and you know, a lot goes to the heart of that essay. It's funny how you know I was probably fifteen, sixteen at the time, and I'm sitting here thirty years later over 30 years later and I'm still talking about it so I should say I'm still very good friends with my English teacher anyway I should tell you the story so and again it goes to the heart of what we're talking about which is trying to make sense of your identity in a wider culture which doesn't know its own history or doesn't understand its own history so, you know, I, I, like you, I would grow up in this culture where we were taught something at school and we'd go home and we'd hear a very different narrative at home. And of course, at that age, at 14, 15, 16, you're trying to make sense of this. You're trying to make sense of what you are and who you are and who's right and who's wrong. And the topic came up and it, it was a discursive essay. It was basically, and I love discursive essays because they didn't take much imagination. All you had to do was have a discussion on something. So there'd be a question. You would have to put three reasons for it and three reasons against and then come to a, a conclusion. So the question might be, you know, what are your views on euthanasia? And then you would, you know, it was, it was nice. It was easy marks because as long as you could hold a reasoned argument, you could score pretty highly. So the question was along the lines of, is history written by the victors? And, and, you know, looking at it more deeply, is it, you know, is there such a thing as, and I didn't think of this at the time, is there such a thing as, you know, universal truth? Uh, but the question was, is history written by the victors? And I was going to use this essay. This essay was going to be my first, I look back at it now, I didn't realise it at the time, but it was my first attempt to make sense of these contradictory narratives that we have in our lives um, and and I would point out and I would do that by pointing to the Bengal famine of 1942-43 in which three million Indians starved to death in a man-made famine that should never have happened but happened because Churchill let it happen and because he thought of Indians as lesser human beings than white people. That's why it happened. That's why it was allowed to happen. And this was going on at the same time as the Holocaust in Europe. And yet here we were sitting in the 80s when, you know, it's illegal to deny the Holocaust, quite rightly. And yet the famine, the Bengal famine, had been airbrushed from our history. And I would, you know, I made the point that, you know, how can you do that? How can you airbrush one and keep one in the in, in the public gaze. And I think it's because we've never been forced to look at our history. So this essay was my opportunity to get all this angst out on the page. You know, how do you how do you reconcile the fact that we are taught to lionize Churchill in this country, but then I would go home and my father would tell me about the bodies dying in the streets that he saw dying in the streets because of Churchill's actions. How do you reconcile these things? And and this essay was my was my therapy or my attempt at therapy. And I was expecting an A, I'll be honest with you. I got a C minus. Looking back, I understand it. And I, as I say, I'm still very good friends with my English teacher. And, and I can understand why I got that C. I got it for several reasons. Firstly, you know, I made the, I, I committed the, the terrible sin of moral equivalence, which you should never do. But at the same time, part of that was because I was dredging up facts that he'd never heard of. And, you know, if you cannot accept, it's very, very difficult to question 
everything that you've built your life upon. I think in this country, we have a view of ourselves as always being on the side of the angels, as being, as a country, we are morally right. Otherwise, we, you know, why would we enter wars on the flimsiest of evidence? Why We wouldn't have gone to war in the second Gulf War if we didn't believe we were always on the side of right. You and I know that because, because of our backgrounds, we know that the history of Britain is far more checkered than we are taught in this country. And so I learned then that if you're going to deal with these issues, you have to deal with them subtly. And quite frankly, that C that I got that day, I wouldn't write what... I mean, the, the, the seeds that were sown that day in anger are what led me 25, 30 years later to start writing about this period because it's important to, to talk about it. Um, if I do get to write one book, the book I do want to write is is the one about the Bengal famine. But I don't feel I'm ready to write it yet. I think we'll be seeing that from you in the future. Um, can we also talk about your very British view of what you say in um, your piece? You write, I don't want one version of history forcibly replaced by another. I'd rather the history be explained, both the good and the bad, and then a decision taken preferably at a council meeting over tea and biscuits, as to whether a statue should be kept or uprooted. Nuance belongs on both sides, as does tolerance. So how do we negotiate this in a time when there is such performative anger on both sides and not enough tolerance? Go on a beer, solve the nation's problems for us. (laughs) I don't think I need to solve the nation's problems because I think earlier we were talking about different brands or strands of Britishness. And why, you know, your strand of my, or my strand of Britishness is just as genuine as somebody else's. Um, having said that, I think there are certain things that are quintessentially British. And part of that is a degree of tolerance. It, it goes to the heart of who we are as a nation, I think. And, you know, no matter where our ancestors might be from, no matter our skin colour, there is this, we are quite a tolerant nation. And there is this idea of, of bumbling through in small communities and small committees. You know, the example I'd give is, you know, P.G. Woodhouse, Jeeves and Worcester books. Um, You know, he makes fun of fascists. You've got this Spode character in his black shorts. You know, he says at some point that, you know, you can't imagine... Jack, you know, fascists in jackboots goose-stepping down the mall because British people would just laugh at them. And I think there's a truth to that. There's a, and you know, it, it goes to it goes to the same sort of spirit of you know Napoleon calling the British a nation of shopkeepers. I think we are. I think we, and I think we're a nation of people who like the small things and are not swayed by the big things. You know, we're not swayed by the big currents. We do not go along with the big currents, because I think the small things, you know, the the small committees, the small council meetings, the tea and biscuits are what make us who we are as a country. And so, you know, this issue of uprooting statues, fine, I agree, some of them need to go, but I'd rather that be done, you know, in, in a very British way, which is, let's look at the facts, let's send it to a committee, let's have, let's have a cup of tea, and then we'll decide, let's not, let's forget about the pomp Let's forget about the fanfare. That's for other people, right? Let's just do things in our British way. And if we're going to, as I say, if we're going to get rid of these statues, let's do it in the middle of the night. Let's just move them without any fuss. Don't chuck them in a, in the harbour. Let's just take them to the British Museum and put them in there because it'll be empty by then. So, you know, when we've given everybody their stuff back. And, and I think that's to be celebrated. I, I love the fact that we are a nation of moderation. 
I'd rather be with the, and, and we still are, you know, we hear the loud voices on both sides. We always hear, you know, the shouts of, the people that shout loudest are generally on the fringes. And and this is something that I honestly believe, and maybe this goes back to my upbringing, um, but I honestly believe that this is a very tolerant, open, fair-minded country in general. I mean, it's, you know, there are huge issues with it, but there are huge issues everywhere. We shouldn't let the margins dictate what we do as a nation. I'd rather, you know, talk quietly to the vast majority of people and get an audience from the vast majority of people than shout loudly and aim my message at a fringe minority. Um, so actually, this segues nicely into um, my next question on this climate of change. Have our souls been weather beaten or has COVID and the multiple lockdowns provided all of us with an opportunity to reflect on what it means to live when living itself has, you know, came to a halt? How how have things changed in lockdown for you as a writer and actually just as a person? And what are your thoughts on its impact on a national level? There's a small question for you. No, but that's a good question, you know, and it's changed. It's It's changed through every phase of this lockdown um it started off and i don't think you know going back to last february or, you know none of us thought that a year later or 14 months later we'd still be you know living in lockdown i expected it to be two three months and at that point i saw it as you know it's a reset maybe this will get us to to see what matters in terms of community and that in terms of who we are as a people. You know, what, one of the things that struck me was that you go back two years ago and all the ethnic minorities you saw on TV were either shopkeepers or playing terrorists, right? And then all of a sudden, at the start of the uh, pandemic, every ethnic minority face you saw on TV was a doctor or a nurse. And that was a great thing. I thought that was brilliant. You know, suddenly we're being shown for who we are rather than um, you know, stereotypes. And I thought, well, you know, this will lead to a change. The problem is this has gone on so long. I think, personally speaking, it's become attrition. I think we're just trying to get through it now. I wonder how much of these positive, you know, ideals that we had last April, last March, you know, how much of that is still with us and how much of it is just, we just want to get this over with and get back to normality. I would hope that we can take positives from this. I, I hope we come through this and we will be a more equitable society. We will see who the real people that make society function are, and we will appreciate them as such. The doctors, the nurses, the care home workers, delivery people, the people that take risks. But my gut feel is that nothing's going to change. I think because this has gone on so long now, I think it's not going to change anything. If anything, my fear is that things are going to get worse. If you see who suffered in this pandemic, it's been those who were already at the bottom of our pyramid. It was the people whose lives were already precarious are now even more so. People who we brought out of poverty are now back in poverty. And at the same time, house prices are skyrocketing. So it tells you we've become two societies. So I have to be honest, I'm very pessimistic that we will be any better as a society than after this than we were going in. Uh, my fear is that we'll be in a worse position, but prove me wrong, Written. Yeah, and yet you finish your piece with hope. And I think this is what I perhaps love most about your writing and actually your general perspective on things. 
more often than not, is I think it's far easier to be cynical and optimistic and to perceive others as either with you or against you rather than people who are also trying to just find their way, no matter how flawed their way might be. And I think it takes a certain level of optimism about people to be able to do this. And even though you say you're cynical and that you're quite angry about things, you are also one of the most affable people I know. So in face of this feeling of hopelessness or... um, sometimes defeat how do you feed that hope into your writing even when so much of what you have learned and experienced and continue to experience is counter to this and why do you think that's important it's actually quite easy for me and I think we haven't stressed this enough in this podcast and we probably don't do it in life in general um we've talked about how difficult it is growing up between cultures and, and what it means being part of minority but there's also beautiful side to it, a harmonious side to it that we don't talk well we haven't talked about on this podcast I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't want to be monocultural any more than I would want to be monocultural and that, that came home to me a couple of weeks ago so I'm editing an anthology of short stories at the moment I'm involved in the editing of uh, an anthology of crime stories half of which are written by Scottish writers and half of which are written by Bengali writers and that's really quite an interesting exercise because I'm the only one who seems to understand all the stories. Never, we never figured this out. When we started this process, we assumed that a crime story written by somebody who'd grown up in Scotland wouldn't be a million miles away from a story written by somebody growing up in Calcutta. We thought that you know there, there would be enough common ground for them to work quite well together. And what we found is that they're actually really, really different creatures. Really different stories, really different set of parameters behind them. You know, out of the whole lot of people who are working on this, because I sit in the middle, I can understand both and I can bring them together in a way which nobody else working on the project from either side can actually do because the frames of references are too alien. And that, to me, is beautiful. The fact is that we've been given this gift of sitting between cultures, of being able to interpret one culture to another and vice versa. And that has to give you hope because, you know, the the fact is you and I probably understand more of mankind than most people do because we've been given that gift of being exposed or being part of a much wider group of people or a much wider spectrum of culture. You know, I'll hear a poem in Bengali and I'll understand the nuances that somebody who's reading the English translation won't. That's that's wonderful to me because it means I have a range of you know inputs to my life which other people probably don't have because of their background. So we should celebrate that. And that's, I think, partly what drives my optimism. Um, I've, to be honest, I've always been an optimistic person. It may be because, you know, despite everything, I can't I can't sit here and hand on heart tell you. I've had a difficult life. I haven't. I've had a wonderful life. Um, And that's because of the society that I grew up in. That's because of the inputs into my life from a parental point of view, a community point of view, and a British point of view. And I I do feel myself to be extremely fortunate. Nobody's life is perfect, but ours, you know, the, the life that I have, the life that you have, is extremely. I think we're very extremely fortunate to have them, to have all of these stimuli, all these inputs into our lives, and yet to have the security of being British. And I'm going to quote Sue Townsend, I'm going to quote the inimitable Adrian Mole here. 
being born with a British passport is like winning the lottery without, you know, buying a ticket or even before the start of your life. And I have to agree with that. I think, you know, I'm proud to be British. I'm proud to be my form of British. And that has to make me optimistic because otherwise, what would you do? You wouldn't write. You'd be, it's, it's tiring being angry. It's much better. And, and sometimes it's necessary to be angry, but a lot of the time it can be counterproductive if you are constantly in somebody's face. I think it's much easier to make friends and change things by doing it softly and pointing to the common ground and making people laugh along the way. That's how you change opinions. And on that note, that's a lovely note to, hopeful note to end on, I feel. Adrian Moore, yes. Thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us always on Twitter and Instagram at Writers' Centre. You can check out our Facebook page. And if you go to our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, you can sign up to our weekly newsletter. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. Please do consider making a donation today by heading over to the National Centre for Writing website and hitting support us in the top right hand corner. If you enjoyed the episode, please do leave us a review on iTunes or in your favourite podcast app. It does help other people to find and check out the podcast. Mm -hmm.